Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. I'm going to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians. We've been studying this letter that Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. And this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn to chapter 4 in 1 Corinthians. We'll take a look at the first uh, five verses there, just so we can see kind of what was happening there and see how it applies to where we're at right here, because it certainly does. Um, I was doing a little research on this. You're welcome. Before I get up here, I was doing a little research on these things. Um, so the, the Pew Foundation did some, some studies, and I know this is going to totally blow you away, but did you know that Americans are suspicious of people in leadership? <laughs> I, you're probably sitting there going, how much time did you spend on that? Because we probably already knew that without actually looking into it. But I'm going to give you a little bit of information, all right? So go ahead. For those of you that are note takers, scribble this down because I think you're going to be fascinated by it. Uh, this was just a couple of years ago. Two-thirds of adults think other Americans have little or no confidence in the federal government. We're not going to be doing raise your hands today, by the way. Uh, majorities believe the public's confidence in the U.S. government and in each other, not just the government, but what we believe about each other, is shrinking. And most believe a shortage of trust in government and in other citizens makes it harder to solve the nation's biggest problems. As a result, many think it's necessary to, to, to clean up what they call the trust environment or, or the lack of trust environment. It's probably a better way to say it. 68% say it is very important to repair the public's level of confidence in the federal government. Okay, I'll do it. How many of you would agree with that? Let me see your hands. And I got a, all right. I think my work here is done. That's, all right. 58% say the same thing about improving confidence in our relationships with each other. So the federal government is definitely getting a harder hit than all us local folk, but we're all taking some shots here. Now, to be fair, I think there's some history here that makes some suspicions fair. For example, uh, Richard Nixon. You all remember Richard Nixon? You know, I am not a crook. Well, yes, you are, <laughs> right? Bill Clinton. Uh, you probably remember something with Bill Clinton, right? You know, when he's asked whether or not he had a sexual relationship with Monica Lewinsky, he was like, nah. Okay. Stuff like that doesn't help, right? It just doesn't help. Just so you know, young adults are more pessimistic than older adults about trust issues. I told you, take some notes. Younger adults are more suspicious than older adults with trust issues. Young adults are about half as hopeful as their elders when they are asked how confident they are in the American people to respect the rights of those who aren't like them. It's kind of a big gap between the two. One third, about one third, 35% of those that are in the ages of 18 to 29 are confident that Americans have that respect compared with 67% of those that are 65 years and older. That's a huge gap between two generations. All right, you get the idea. I bring this up because we have trust issues. In fact, majorities believe the federal government and the news media withhold, this is going to blow your mind, withhold important and useful information from us. 
and notable numbers say that they struggle to know what's even true when they listen to elected officials or they're watching the news. How y'all feeling out there this morning? Does that sound like you? Like you're watching the news and go, I don't even know what to believe anymore. I actually will do this. I will flip on one news channel to watch them report about something. And then I'll flip over to a different news channel to watch them report on the same thing. And you wouldn't actually know they're reporting on the same thing. You know what I'm talking about? It's stuff like that. What, where has this gotten us? Well, I'm glad you asked. Where it's gotten us is we have unprecedented levels of cynicism running through our people. Here's basically what I mean by cynicism. We have this belief that people, meaning other people, not, not me, right? I mean, you don't think about yourself necessarily. You think about other people. People are motivated purely by their own self-interest and are even naturally skeptical of other people. Okay, now how many of you think that's fair? That's fair. That's where a lot of people are. Well, to be honest, some of the distrust is fair. That's why I talked about Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton. No, I gave you one of each party just so I was fair and balanced, right? That's why I give examples like that. Some of it's fair. Some of it is unfair. Some people rush to judgments. Some of it is unfair. And let's face it, we could probably all improve in learning how to forgive each other a little bit. Or when there's maybe a fracture in a relationship, doing some working in good faith with each other to try to restore a broken relationship. I think we could all agree we could do a little bit better at that. Now, here's why I give you all of this. is because here Paul is writing this letter to this church at Corinth, and they were messed up. They were, they were getting their beliefs about God wrong. They were fighting with each other. Paul had planted this church, and so he writes a letter back to them to say, hey, cut it out. Cut it out. You're killing the work of God with the way that you guys are acting. And no, this is going to stun you. Some of the people in the church had even turned on Paul. What do you do with that? All right, so you have that background so that I think you can understand what he's saying in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, because he's going to give an analogy here about the church. Let's take a look at it. Let's read it. He said, a person should think of us in this way. And he's talking about leaders in the church. Notice I said people are skeptical of leadership. He said, a person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it's required that managers be found faithful. It's of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm, I'm not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. There's just a few things here that I want us to take note of this morning. How are we supposed to look at leadership in the church? It's not a question in Scripture as to whether or not there are leaders of the church. There, there are leaders of the church. But how do we look at leaders of the church? And Paul says you should think of us as servants. It's the way that you should look at us. Slaves by this way, back then, slaves inside of a Greco-Roman household, it's the way that you should look at us. Uh, they, uh, we're managers of what it is that God has entrusted to us, which is the mystery of God. It's not a mystery, it's been revealed. It's, it's been entrusted to us to share Jesus with people. That's what's been handed over to us. Notice that he gives this image, he borrows images of what was happening in the culture around. Slaves were just out there 
Probably 70% of the people in Corinth were slaves of some shape, form, or fashion. Hold on to that because he uses a word here. The word for slave means an under rower. All right. How many of you have ever uh, seen any rowing from mainly the Ivy League schools? <laughs> All right. They row. Right Now, he borrows this, this picture back then because they did the same thing then. And you would have a person that was the captain of the ship, and he would stand, and he was the one that would look forward while everybody else was back, and they were rowing in unison for a common goal and a common purpose. We're the under rowers. You can see where this is going. You have one person that is in leadership of the whole team that's headed all in the same direction. Paul gives that kind of word picture for it. And he says, but here's the thing. What are you rowing? What's your common destiny? He said, is to steward or to manage a house. Think about it. So everybody that he's talking to here, whether it's a leader in the church or whether it's just a regular folk in the church, all are called slaves. All of us are actually called slaves. It's supposed to, it's supposed to give this image of who we are under the leadership of Jesus Christ. So we're a slave under the Lord, but we're a master. The leaders are supposed to be pictured as the one that's at the head of the ship saying this is the way that we go, not the other way around. It's the leader that's the one that's supposed to say it. Now, let me tell you why this is so important. It's not a power that's supposed to be abused by a leader. It's a responsibility that's been entrusted. And if you look at it, he says, you've been given the care of the household Now, just so you know, you go, what does that even mean? Well, that was a big deal back then. Because uh, imagine this. Imagine that you're a landowner, like back then, right? And you say, all right, I have to go away for business. I'm in Corinth, and I got to go to Rome. Well, that's not four miles away. So when the leaders of the home, which is the leader of the wife, the leader of the children, the leader of the land, they own the land, right? That everybody is there that's working. And he says, I got to go away. It wasn't uncommon for those folks to go away for a year at a time. I mean, after all, you got to travel to Rome. That's it's not a plane. It's going to take a while. So they're, I'm going to go. I may be gone a year. I might be gone two. And so I'm going to entrust everything over to you. You see how important this is? So this image of of a slave that Paul is borrowing from, these people were people of integrity. These were people that were, you don't think American slave system, don't, put that aside. These were often very well-educated people. They were often very well-off people. And they would literally entrust the care of, I'm leaving my wife behind to go on business. I'm leaving my children behind to go on business. And I'm I'm leaving the whole land over to you. Take good care of it while I'm gone. That's what Paul is saying. That requires a lot of trust, doesn't it? A lot of trust. And here's what he said. You saw it in verse 2. Prove yourself trustworthy. Prove yourself trustworthy. And, And notice, this isn't just for the leaders. It's for everyone that's connected to the master's stuff. Everyone that is left behind while the master is gone, they're the ones that are behind working the farm, getting the crops, going out and selling. It's to all of them. And this is why Paul says something. It's kind of an eye popper when you think about it because this guy's in a position of leadership. But he said this in verse three. I don't really care much about what people think. (laughs) How often do you hear leaders say something like that? It's of relative Uh, unimportance what you actually think about me. That's a bold statement, but he actually says it. 
But he says it because of this. I care a lot about what the master thinks about me. I want the master to be pleased because the master will inevitably judge me. I, I want to point this out. If you're a leader, you're going to get criticized. I, I mean, it's just, it's going to happen. When I was a professor in our seminaries, one of the things that I always told students is, listen, you are going to get criticized. It's what happens. In fact, I was telling Wendy, just there, we were driving, and I said, I've always thought of leadership a little bit like this, like the license plates on your car. So the leader is the one that's at the front of the car. Have you ever looked at the difference between your license plate on the front and the license plate that's on the back, especially for those of you that actually wash your own cars like I do? Uh, I mean, when you get to the front of the car, you notice what's on that front license plate? It is slammed with bugs, and it is absolutely dirty. Flap, flap, flap. It just takes a beating, and you got to scrub that stuff off. Then you go to the back of the car, and you go, and you go, that was easy. License plate is clean. That's the difference for those that are actually in a position of leadership versus those that aren't. It's just an easier place to be to not lead. That's why a lot of people don't want it. They don't want to deal with the criticism, the bickering, and the fighting. And did you notice this? Paul wasn't even immune to it. They even came after him. We're not sure what they were saying. It's just that Paul points it out. They were coming after this guy. So this is why I tell seminary students, people, if they were coming after Paul, take it to the bank. They're coming after you. They're coming after you. Okay, that's the end of the sermon. No, I'm kidding. A little bit more to go, because there's more to say. There's more to say here. They're critiquing Paul. We're not sure why, but that's why Paul says, I, I can't busy myself with worrying about everybody's opinion because there's a noble work that we exist to do. Let's stay with the noble work. There's a New Testament scholar named Craig, Craig Blomberg. He said this. He said, the key task is faithfulness to the master, not kowtowing to every demand of the underlings. And he's absolutely right. Now, I want to give you a sidebar here. I do, because Proverbs 15:22 does say this, plans go wrong for a lack of advice, and many advisors bring success. One of the things I certainly try to do is to surround myself with people that are wise and that are godly, that can speak good things into the good of me and to the good of our church. There is that. However, on the flip side, there's Galatians 1:10. Paul said, if I were still trying to win the approval of people, I wouldn't even be a servant of Christ. There's the other side of it. So you try to hold those two things in balance. And here's the kicker. He's writing this letter to a church. He says, most of you aren't even mature. Not to say you don't know some things about God, because they did. But when he talks about mature, it literally means to be walking in the way of Jesus. And he goes, why, why would I busy my mental effort with you who aren't even walking in the way of Christ? I'm going to worry myself with Christ. So that's what he's trying to say. And that's why he says in verse 4, and my conscience is clear. In spite of what you're trying to do to me, my conscience is clear. He does admit this, though. He goes, I may not be innocent. Maybe I make a mistake. He said, I'm unaware. I'm aware of nothing against myself. He says, so I'm not even going to judge myself on this. Maybe I made a mistake in there. So I'm not aware of it. And it certainly wasn't intentional. He said, but the Lord will judge me. It won't be you. It'll be him. This is the analogy. The leaders of the church don't answer to the slaves. They don't. They stay at the head of the ship, and they keep the ship going forward. He says, but I will give an account to the master, which is enough. So at this point, if you look at verse 5, he says, so don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden. By the way, I'm going to admit I don't like these verses. 
I just don't. Uh, it's like I always say, though, if you read scripture, Jesus doesn't say, I tell you an easy truth. He just says, I'm going to tell you the truth. Here's what he goes. Don't judge any, anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts, and then praise will come to each one from God. Notice he says, don't be judging people. Let me be clear on what he means here. He doesn't mean not, not to make any judgments whatsoever. And do that. You know, if you were to look at Ted Bundy, who raped and murdered at least 33 women, I feel okay making a judgment about that. I just do. You know, and, and even the same Paul in 1 Corinthians later says, be not deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. You need to be paying attention to the character of people. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about these people that will stand at a safe distance and just condemn people. Just constantly bomb dropping on people is what he's talking about. You know what's difficult in all this? Especially as we're talking about other people, we have a hard time understanding what their motives are, don't we? We see actions. You know what we all often don't see? Motives. We often don't see intention. All right, I'm going to fill you in on something. There was an article that came out in the Atlantic. I know that you were wondering about this, so I wanted to share it, okay? There was a book called No One Understands You and What to Do About It. <laughs> Heidi Halverson tells readers a story about her friend Tim. So just pay attention to this. When Tim started a new job as a manager, one of his top priorities was communicating to his team that he valued their input. Nothing wrong with that. So at team meetings, as each member spoke up about whatever project they were working on, uh, Tim made sure to put on his active listening face. I don't know what it was, but it's in the article, okay? So he had an active listening face to signal that he cared about what each person was saying. Maybe something like this. But I don't know. I wasn't there. But after, after meeting with him a few times, here's the Tim's team got a very different message from the one that he intended to send. Let me quote it. After a few weeks of meetings, they said, one team member finally summoned up the courage to ask him the question that had been on everyone's mind. And the question was this, Tim, are you mad at us right now? And when Tim explained that he wasn't at all angry, that he was just putting on his active listening face, his colleague gently explained that his active listening face looked a whole lot like an angry face. Tim's sitting there going, news to me. I just wanted you guys to know that I was paying attention. They're over there going, he's hot today. And I don't mean good looking. I mean, he's angry, right? All right, let me give you another example here. One person may think, for example, that by offering help to a colleague, she's coming across as gracious and even generous. But her colleague may interpret it as her, off, as her ha having a lack of faith in their ability to do a job. Have you ever been there before? Wires got crossed. Here's what the, the book went on to say. The gap arises from some quirks in human psychology. First, most people suffer from what psychologists call the transparency illusion. Are y'all writing this down? Or did I do all this research for nothing out there? All right, it's recorded. You can come back to it. It's called the transparency illusion. This is the belief that what you feel and desire and intend is crystal clear to everybody around you. Even though you have done very little to communicate clearly what is going on in your mind. By the way, guess where I'm not? In your head. Not there. But we all, we all do this. It's called the transparency illusion. I've been clear about this. Mm, have you? Have you? Okay. Chances are, here's what she goes on to say. Chances are, how you look when you are slightly frustrated isn't at all that different from how you look 
when you're a little concerned. I, I don't know that that was his look. I just went back to it. Or confused or disappointed or even nervous. And so you've got these expressions going and everybody's out there looking at you going, I bet I know what's going on inside of them. All I'm saying is, be careful. As they went on to say, your, your I'm kind of hurt by what you just said face probably looks an awful lot like your I'm not at all hurt by what you just said face. And the majority of times that you've said to yourself, I made my intentions clear or he knows what I meant, you didn't and he doesn't. There, I just distilled a book for you. You're welcome. Now, let me finish this thought a little bit. There's a Nobel Prize winner named David Kahneman. And here's what he said. He said, there are two ways that the mind processes information. I'm only worried about one today. Uh, including information about other people. Through cognitive processes, Kahneman said this. He calls what's called System 1 and System 2. These systems, he describes in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, serve as metaphors for the way that we reason. Here's System 1, and we do this a lot. It processes information very quickly, very quickly, very intuitively, and automatically. Uh, one of the ways he said it, it's almost like when I go, one plus one, you go, see, boom. I mean, some of you weren't so sure, it seems, but whatever. We'll go with the, I was trying to do a gimme here. Y'all blew it. One plus one, two, it just, boom, it just pops out of you, right? Now, when it comes to social perception, system one, which you just used, one plus one, you just used it, it uses shortcuts to come to conclusions about another person. And we all do it. This is his point. We all do it. There are many shortcuts that the mind relies on to read facial expressions, body language, to read people's intentions. And one of the most powerful ones is what is called, write this down, the primacy effect. And it explains why first impressions are so important. Here's what they found. The information that one person learns about another in their early encounters with that person powerfully determines how they will see that person from that point forward. Even though, by the way, there's a whole lot more to that person than maybe that encounter ever presented to you. We system one think, pop, and we're so sure of it, and we're wrong a lot, like a lot. So there's more in all of this. Paul here is saying, so calm yourself down. Get out of your own head a little bit. Be gracious to other people. Maybe a little less chicken fried people every now and again. You get it? He says, because at the end of the day, God is going to bring to light everything, including your intentions, which to you may have presented themselves as pure, when in fact they weren't. So be cautious, be careful. He says, God will reward, and that's a good thing. When we think of consequences, we typically think kind of negatively, don't we? But Paul says, maybe, but there's so much good that God wants to give to you. Something I want you to keep in mind. The greatest reward for these people, like them that he was writing, was honor. It, was on it wasn't money, it was honor. Someone speaking well of you mattered. 
And even if we look at John chapter 12, verse 26, it says, and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. It's honor. He will. He will honor it. Or Revelation chapter 22, verse 12 says, look, I'm coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people, not just leaders, to repay all people according to their deeds. There's something that I want you to hold fast into your mind this morning, and it is this, and please write it down if you need to to remember it. You are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and your judge, your works will be judged. It's not one or the other. It is both. Let, let me unpack this a little bit. There's a guy that I like a lot. His name is Dallas Willard. He said, grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. Let me, let me point a beautiful story in Scripture that proves that you are saved simply by the grace of Jesus Christ. And you see it in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. I just want to read it to you. It says, one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table, which is what they did. And a woman in the town who was a sinner, I love that part, by the way. There was, there was a woman in the town that was, I was like, bring the whole town in then, right? And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume. She stood behind him at his feet weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair kissing them and anointing them with perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman who's touching him. She's a sinner. And Jesus replied to him, by the way, he was thinking it, he didn't say it out loud. And Jesus replies to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, well, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50 that's a big gap. Since they couldn't pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, oh, I suppose the one that he forgave more. And he says, you've judged it correctly. Turning to the woman, he, he, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved so much. That's why. That's the why. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. You don't have an appreciation for how deep the grace of Jesus is for you. You're like, well, it wasn't that big a deal. And then he said, he turns to the woman and he says this to her. Your sins are forgiven. This woman hasn't done one thing to earn this. She turned to the one who can forgive and said, forgive me. And he said, I will. So we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Here's the second truth. Your works will be judged. They will be judged. In Revelation chapter 20, 21, verse 12, and let me just read this for you. It says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in these books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Second time it says it. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Something that I want you to see very clearly here is that you're justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You can never earn the relationship. But there is more to the story. It's like this. God says, I've given you a job to do. That's very different than saying you're saved if you do a good job. That's very different. On the one hand, I've given you a job to do perfectly within the realm of the master when he returns to judge what we have done. But that is different than saying I'll accept you in virtue of what you do. It's all by his grace. So let me get back to Revelation. Because I love the way that this this passage ends. It says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. I'm making everything new. I want you to think, it, it, is the world in a little bit of a mess right now? And were you not absolutely crushed and heartbroken by what happened in Uvalde this week? Did that not crush you? Something is not right. Something is not right. And you have this promise in the book of Revelation. He who was seated on the throne, which is Jesus Christ, said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and they're true. And he said to me, it's done. I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Is that not beautiful? And is that not everything that the world needs right now? We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.